Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. And Orange Theory Fitness, delivering fitness results for a healthier world. From Mansur's on the Boulevard in Baton Rouge, we're out to lunch with editor of the Baton Rouge Business Report, Stephanie Regal. It's business Baton Rouge style. Hi, I'm Stephanie Regal. Welcome to Out to Lunch. Agriculture is one of Louisiana's major industries, but while we know a lot about the rice, sugarcane, and cattle farms around the state, there are other types of farms and aspects of farming you may not be so familiar with, or perhaps never even thought of. With me today to discuss this is David Fluker, who owns and operates Fluker Farms, a Port Allen-based company that grows live crickets and sells them online to customers all over the U.S. It's a bustling business with sales that top well over $10 million and involves all sorts of interesting logistics because shipping live crickets is a lot more complicated than you might think. And the story gets even more interesting because Fluker Farms Cricket Operations is actually just one of several ventures on Dave's 10-acre property. In recent years, he has cultivated several startups at the farm, each of which run independently but share some back office functions. They include Rue Brands, a home accessories designer whose owner was on this show a while back, and Liquid P2P and some others that we look forward to hearing about. Dave, I love your story. It's so cool. Thanks so much for being here today on Out to Lunch. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Also at the table with me and Dave is Bob Denka, who works in a field vitally important to farming. Bob is a research leader and research entomologist at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, who specializes in honeybee behavior and pollination. And without pollination, of course, we wouldn't have crops. And there are some very serious problems facing bees and therefore agriculture, which is what makes Bob's work so important. Specifically, Bob studies the behavior and management of African honeybees, honeybee behavior related to crop pollination, and the genetically based resistance of bees to mites, which as you may know, even if you know very little about the subject, are very, very bad for the bee population. Bob started working in this field in the 1970s and is stationed at the Baton Rouge Bee Station, which is one of the capital region's best kept secrets. But we're going to break it wide open today. Bob, thanks for being here on Out to Lunch. Thank you, Stephanie. Well, Dave, I'll start with you. Fluker Farms started out in the 1950s as a small bait shop on Highway 190, I believe started by your dad. He operated it seasonally. And today, if you Google live crickets, Fluker Farms is the first thing that comes up. That is pretty impressive. Give us a little bit of the evolution of this business. So I am a second-generation cricket farmer. We are working on bringing in the third generation. My nephew has started working with us uh, about a year and a half ago. Uh, so when I was very young, uh, I recall working at the cricket farm. I can uh, literally trace back my first paycheck at age 11, which, uh, you know, when you're dealing with farming, you know, you can work your kid at any age. So, uh, you know, I certainly started out very young. Um, when I took over the business uh, in the very early 80s, uh, my father decided to retire. My, my mother had passed away and he kind of felt like life was passing him by. So I grabbed the reins and uh, as I was working the farm, I noticed that we were starting to sell more crickets to, to zoos and uh, pet shops and places like that. Hmm. And that's when I began to try to market our crickets to the pet shops. 
And uh, from there, we just really went on and added more insects. As a, you know, crickets really became a feeder insect, uh, more so than a fish bait. And if you look at our business today, you know, the insect portion is maybe 20% of the overall business. Um, feeder insects are probably 98% of that business, and a small slither would, would be for fish bait. It's very common today for people to have pet lizards or, okay. you know, so maybe they have hedgehogs that will eat crickets. Just, you know, different animals uh, will, will add insects to their diet. So mm-hmm. uh, it's very popular for, for people to have bearded dragons and such. Uh, and those types of animals, they all eat crickets. Interesting. And you all breed them and, and sell them? And we'll get into the logistics in a Sure, bit. yeah. We, uh, you know, we have a cycle coming off every week. So every week there's a brand new cycle of crickets. And uh, it takes about five and a half to six weeks for a full cycle. Okay. Uh, and once they're uh, fully matured, we will take that group and we'll lay eggs and we, you know, we start the cycle all over. So, so like each week, you you got a different age, and we sell them at all various sizes. You know, some people have a small lizard; they need small crickets. <laughs> they have a big lizard; they need big crickets. Who knew? All right, well, I want to hear more about it, but Dave, while you're working with crickets, Bob, you work with bees, and your lab is very well known the world over for its work in developing this bee that is resistant to mites. Probably a lot of people in Baton Rouge, though, don't know about it. What's going on over there? Where are y'all even located? What kind of operation do you have? So this is a lab associated with the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the research arm. Uh, We're located a few miles south of LSU on a Ag Experiment Station. We've got this great partnership with LSU. Uh, the lab, interestingly enough, in some form has been around since 1928. Really? A very long time. Uh, we've been out on Ben-Hur Road at this present location since about 1970. Since I've been there, which is since 1983, we've gone through a series of research projects according to the problems that are facing bees at that time. So you mentioned killer bees at the beginning. I came here specifically from Pennsylvania to do work in Venezuela on Africanized bees. And unfortunately for the beekeeping industry, it's literally been one problem after another since really? I showed up. It's benefited me. <laughs> You're bad But luck. it's an amazing string of, of research topics that I've had to cover. And, and do we know why bees have faced so many challenges over the past few decades? It's really fairly simple. Most of the challenges, the biological challenges, are exotic pests which have come here from various places, Europe, Asia, Africa. Uh, the loss of habitat, just because we develop more and more property, mm-hmm. and evolving pesticide pressures. So, so combination, are, right. yes. trifecta, huh? So the, mites, the mite-resistant bee strains is your specialty. And I remember we started hearing about this in the lay community. We started hearing about these, this mite problem just a few years ago, and it's bad. It's threatening agriculture and crops. Yeah, this particular mite is the second one that's a big problem. This one came from Asia by jumping species from a bee that's native there onto the bees we use and then quickly got distributed around the world. A couple of things are rather amazing. The mite is found in bees everywhere except Australia and for example, here in the United States, you can assume that the mite is found in every colony of bees. It's a constant wow. threat. Wow. And, and so you're trying to genetically modify them so they will be resistant to it rather than come up with a chemical that would kill the mite. Yeah, the lab, the lab got involved in this sort of research uh, 25 years ago. So it's, it was both first a scientific challenge and now sort of a technology transfer challenge. And 
Um, we're still not there, but we're making good progress. Right, I want to get back to the tech transfer in a minute. So how is the cricket market, Dave? I mean, you mentioned there are more and more people that have these exotic pets that will eat them. But, I mean, how big of a market is it, and how large of a presence are y'all in that market as, as a player besides just having really great SEO on Google? Uh, yeah, you know, we have worked hard for that Google SEO, i got to say. Um, to be honest about it, we are probably not – uh, anywhere near the largest farm. Um, when I started out uh, in the in the very early '80s, crickets were about fifteen dollars a thousand. Fifteen dollars per fast one thousand. Fast forward okay. to today, and crickets are about eighteen dollars a thousand. Wow. So, you know, to be honest about it, we have worked hard to uh, to try to go a different route and sell smaller quantities direct to the consumer. So, you know, we can sell 100 crickets and they're like $9 a thousand. So you can see how that pricing is different. Sure. So when you look at crickets, um, there is a large and growing, uh, you know, a demand on the pet side for crickets. But uh, I think if you look far into the future, the growth is actually going to come on the, on the uh, human consumption side. Uh, it takes very little space. That's right. It takes uh, very little. <laughs> You're talking sp- about eating them. I'm talking about eating crickets. Uh-huh. Yes. Um, and actually, when you roast them, it's got a nice, you know, a nutty smell. They they taste kind of malty when you grind them up. So you you've done this a lot, I guess. I have had my share of crickets. Yeah. You know, we 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 actually uh, sold a chocolate covered cricket, probably back in the '90s, and. Um, uh, you know, we were doing a trade show, and my father wanted to bring people to our to our booth at this pet show, and so uh, and so you know we did a chocolate covered cricket, and we got some you know a lot of people at the booth, and I said you know what why don't we put a button with that, so we put a button that said I ate a bug club Fluker Farms, and we added it to the cricket, and people just mobbed our booth. I mean, it was there was a line there, so we said hey this is a product, so uh, you know we brought the product to market. Uh, the ad company for Hewlett Packard saw it somewhere that was out on the East Coast, and next thing you know, I'm doing a national ad campaign for for you know for them on their printers. So it was a no very, it was a very interesting story. Yeah. But but the human consumption, where I mean, where's that going? Like on the I'm human consumption side, yeah. Around, um, around town so, yet. so in about 30 years, there's going to be a food crisis worldwide, and. Uh, when you look at uh, certain types of animal protein, uh, it takes a lot of land, a lot of feed, and a lot of water to grow beef. Uh, you know, back it down mm. to chickens. You know, it, it's you know it's not quite as bad as cattle, but it's still a lot. Now, when you bring that down to crickets, uh, it takes very little feed, very little water, and a and a very small footprint. And you can grow a high uh, protein source food uh, that's. Uh, you know, in our world right now, I'm sure it's, a, or at least in, in the U.S., you know, we don't consider it a food, but it's a, it's a growing sector. So, so interesting. And crickets don't get mites? We do have some mites. <laughs> really? But, but uh, you know, the biggest issue that the cricket industry has faced about, and I may be off on my time frame, but we'll say 10 years ago, there was a cricket virus that was, that was a species-specific uh, that actually, uh, you know, started wiping out growers within our cricket industry. Uh, no one sh- is sure exactly what the vector was, uh, you know, but once you got that virus, it was over. Uh, you know, so I've got to give kudos to the guys at uh, APHIS. I've never seen the U.S. government work so fast. Uh, we put about 25 cricket farmers on a conference call, which was kind of funny in itself. And uh, we started talking to the guys uh, out at APHIS, and we were able to fast-track a different species of cricket 
So the guys that got the virus grow a alternative species than the one that's normally grown from the old the old farms. So interesting. So so Bob, I mean, is that the kind of stuff that you all are involved in with respect to bees? I mean, what's going on in inside the bee lab? What does your work look like, and how do you come up with these mite resistant species? As I mentioned, uh, there have been this series of biological problems. Uh, a mite from Europe, this mite from uh, Asia, beetles from Africa, some other Asian fungal parasite. And there are a lot of moving parts, so we have to make decisions about where to put research efforts. It's never clear. It's research, which means we're out there in the unknown. Um, the, the evolution of the research has been more toward broad issues rather than just in genetics, which has been our focus for the last 40 years probably. Okay. So there is a lot of work now, for example, on viruses, on fungal problems and these other issues, not just bee genetics. In terms of breeding bees for genetic resistance to a problem, on one hand it's kind of simple. Bees are pretty amenable to breeding and not all animals are like that. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you have to get into the, the details of bee reproduction to understand how difficult it can be to be a breeder. Um, we don't even know how many uh, honeybee queens are made a year for the industry, but it's probably millions. Right. And the folks who distribute those queens really don't do much breeding. So they rely on a research organization such as us to provide some feedstocks in some cases. Mm -hmm. um, so that's so really our, our customers. Them. You all breed them. Oh, sure. Um, the Bee Lab is functionally a commercial beekeeping enterprise. We really? manage probably 800 colonies of bees, so I get sung by bees every day. Do you really? Sure. <laughs> and, and, and you suit up, I guess, in the big beekeeper uh, Not much, gear? no. Not, not much. <laughs> uh, the big beekeeper gear spells novice very quickly. So, so guys that are real, and, and gals that are real veterans of the industry, and that you just go out there uh, in your street clothes and hope More for the best? <laughs> Well, I don't want to hope for the best, but, I mean, you learn a lot about managing bees pretty quickly. I right? guess you would have to, huh? <laughs> yes. So, so you all are, are, are funded by the Department of Agriculture? You get, uh, you know, grants from the NIS or? Yes, we have base funding from USDA, and we do occasionally get grants from uh, typically NGOs or industry groups. Do you work with LSU? I mean, are you all in partnership with LSU or some of their researchers or at your or you're on their property, or how does that work? Yeah, we technically are on their property, and we do have a close working relationship with several LSU entomologists. So we share students, um, and we share expertise. So what are the implications of these, these, these you know, bees, if, if they are susceptible to mites or the different parasites that might make them sick, for, you know, for our crops and our food source? You mentioned, Dave, that, you know, as we look... 30 years out, there's going to be food shortages around the world, and I guess bee problems make it worse? How bad a problem is this, I guess is what I'm asking. You mentioned the importance of bees for pollination. That's why USDA is in this research field, not for honey production. Bees are important because they pollinate dozens and dozens of different types of crops in the United States. But if the bees went away, we wouldn't lose all crops. We would just lose the diversity of crops that really provides a lot of nutrition fruits, nuts, vegetables, sure. uh, oilseed crops in some cases. So, you know, we're, the bees going away aren't gonna, isn't going to cause starvation down the road, but it really will limit uh, our food choices. Wow. 
You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Stephanie Regal. I'm talking with Bob Danka of the USDA and Dave Fluker of Fluker Farms. We'll be right back after this very short break. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Stephanie Regal. I'm talking to Bob Denka of the USDA and Dave Fluker of Fluker Farms. Dave, my mind is just going back to the cricket thing. How do you kill and prepare a cricket for uh, for preparation to eat? <laughs> so, um, you know, we actually have a freeze-dried product now. And so um, the process would be to put them in the freezer. They just, you know, they go to sleep. And then so it's you know, they euthanize, nice. yeah. So it's a very humane <laughs> process. And and then how do you how do you prepare them? I mean, you mentioned dipping them in chocolate, but are there other ways to eat them? Yeah, so right now, what is um, your favorite? What's my favorite method? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, as far as uh, as far as food on the human side, that's something we are we are currently not doing. Uh, we are we are you know uh, preparing for that. Uh, we look to go into that market probably in about a year or so. Uh, right now, we can barely, you know, keep up with uh, with with our freeze dried crickets. So, um, you know, there was a long time ago uh, we used to have a lot of uh, surplus crickets because they they've got such a short lifespan, and that once they hit about seven weeks old, you really can't sell them. And so, uh, you know, we used to take big old because barrels. they're just they're at the end of their lifespan. They in get, other words, yeah, they get old. They really don't live past two months, especially in the stressful, you know. Uh, when you stress them out, they only live about eight weeks, tops. You know, not they'll, happy. No, no, they'll live longer, but you'd have to, you know, keep them isolated. And but, but in a, you know, in a cricket farm, a commercial rearing environment, they just don't live as long. So, uh, you know, there were times that uh, we would just take a, you know, big old trash cans full of crickets. I mean, probably like a hundred, two hundred thousand, and either go give them to somebody that had chickens or bring them uh, to the river and let the fish eat them. You know, it was such a waste. And I got to thinking, it's like, man, there's got to be something. You know, something we can do with these crickets. So, uh, you know, we started freeze-drying crickets. And um, so now we actually buy uh, surplus from, you know, from several of our, uh, you know, cricket farms uh, that are, you know, we buy from Armstrong and several others. Uh, and we, we take their crickets and we uh, freeze-dry them, and then we actually, it's a product on the shelf. You can find it at, you know, most pet shops and lots of stores. And, and how many are you selling, like uh, a month or a year? What kind of, of volume are you doing? Of freeze-dried crickets? Of both. Yeah, so on the freeze-dried side, we actually freeze-dry about 10,000 pounds a month. Uh, on the uh, volume of crickets, uh, you know, we sell several million weekly. Several million weekly? Yeah, we uh, ship good. out probably over 3,000 packages weekly uh, through FedEx and also the Postal Service. Wow. So what logistics are involved in, sh- in, in, in shipping crickets and, and bees? I just can imagine that logistically it's challenging. It's not surprisingly. You can uh, put those few bees in a box, put a stamp on it, and ship it anywhere across the country. And, and they stay alive? Yes. Just put little air holes in it? Air holes, worker bees to take care of queen bees. Not a problem. Sprinkle a little speaking. food. and. Uh, Dave mentioned something earlier about the U.S. So... We can move bees pretty readily around the United States. It's very difficult to import bees or export bees from the mainland U.S. Within the U.S., though, something that people are often surprised about is how much bees get moved around on trucks. Yeah, I bet so. Particularly for pollination, but also for honey production. So in terms of moving bees on that scale, uh, a commercial beekeeper in Louisiana will put roughly 450 full-size colonies on a flatbed trailer 
and in three days they'll be in the Central Valley of California to pollinate wow. crops. So when we see the big rigs going down the street, we, we are down the highway. We don't know what's on there, but it might be bees, huh? It could be on the lawless highway. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you're reading. Do they need um, to be climate controlled? Is there any concern for that? Yeah, bees easily overheat, so um, they just need ventilation, essentially. Okay. And, and Dave, what about the crickets? Because I know the crickets, we did actually used to have a little frog, and I would buy crickets at the neighborhood hardware store. And right. Sometimes when you open the box the wrong way, they would get all over the bedroom. That they will. Um, you know, crickets, we ship in a screen box, mm-hmm. so the box is ventilated. Uh, and then we take, uh, take uh, egg dividers, right? And if you take an egg divider and, you, and if you turn it just right, you can make uh, you know this uh, honeycomb shape, kind of like bees, right? And um, and that gives them crawl space. So with that, you know, crickets will last anywhere from three to seven days on a shipment. Okay, so so they're a little bit delicate. I mean, you can't be too rough with them, but uh, somewhat delicate. But they're you know they're they're fed and watered and uh, and ready to go. I mean, it's it's not a big issue to ship to ship crickets. I mean, if it. If you're shipping in the middle of a uh, heat wave, it can be somewhat challenging. Uh, and honestly, you know, we have to monitor the weather during the winter. And if it drops below certain temperatures, we just won't ship. You know, we look at the transfer point where the crickets are uh, transferring, and we look at the at the final destination. Okay. Now, Bob, a mi- just okay. a minor um, example. Last week, I was working with bees in North Dakota. I put a package of bees in UPS system on Thursday, and they were here Friday morning, and I put them in colonies. No kidding. Yeah. It's pretty efficient. Um, I want to go back to something you mentioned a few minutes ago. You said something about tech transfer. What about the business side of your research? I mean, are you all able to patent or license the technology, or monetize it? How does that work? Short answer is no. Uh, generally speaking, breeding products aren't patentable, so we've never engaged in that. We may have some spin-off biochemical things or, or some other aspects, but not the genetics, no. Okay. You're just doing it for the greater good of science, I guess, well, basically? Well, our mission is to support this beekeeping industry and agriculture in general, so we're expected to provide solutions to beekeepers sure. and farmers. Okay. And um, why is Baton Rouge, you know, the hub for this research? Why was this place selected? Good question. Um, This is speculation on my part, but I think it has to do with the 1927 flood. Mm -hmm. I think USDA, the federal government, was probably looking for places to put money. I don't know that. But at that time, the concept was that there are beekeepers in the South raising mostly queens, but also bees for sale to other beekeepers around the country. And it was decided by Senator Ellender that we needed or we could use a lab in that whole aspect. So the whole thing started in terms of the reproduction of bees and morphed into the genetics. Interesting. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, LSU was here, and I guess there was probably a lot with that. Dave, at, at your farm, there's a lot going on besides just the crickets, and that's a, another interesting aspect of the Fluker Farm story that we didn't really get into, but you've sort of used that property as an incubator for lots of startups. Yes. That have nothing um, to do with crickets or bees. That have nothing to do with crickets or bees. Um, you know, we currently are working on another startup that actually has to do with uh, bugs and insects, and it's called Soldier Fly Technologies. And that's a uh, that's where that we'll, we'll take food waste and, and we will bioconvert that food waste uh, into feedstock. So for every 100 pounds of food waste, you can get 
uh, about 20 pounds of feedstock. And we're actually working with the LSU uh, Sustainability Fund now. Uh, and, um, you know, we are, we are taking the food waste uh, from campus and we're bioconverting that into feedstock. Okay, this is the greatest story. We're, we're coming back for a whole nother show on this. This is so the, um, interesting. And the other companies, um, one is a uh, home decor company called Rue Brands. Uh, and that was just really started uh, because my late wife, um, you know, needed to some, you know, she wanted something uh, to do. We were very late to the game and having children. We had our first at 40. And, uh, you know, so I said, you know what, I can build you a store. You know, so we did, you know, like an e-com store. And, uh, and now we sell, uh, you know, different things on it. It's really coastal theme, uh, Louisiana themed. Uh, and we're in, you know, lots of stores, lots of small independents. We sell a Bed Bath Beyond, TJ Maxx, uh, lots of places. And it's true, we use the back office of the farm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we use that to help, you know, uh, service that, that, that company. Um, the last company that I, that I did, which actually has nothing to do with crickets either, I just like, uh, I like uh, technology and I like uh, the web. So uh, I developed a company called Liquid P2P, which is in the, um, it uses AI to cherry pick loans in the peer-to-peer space, which is a alternative asset class. You'd have to look it up, but it, uh, it you know, it cherry picks loans off a lending club. And uh, I have a patent pending uh, liquidity model that uh, makes this asset class liquid. Um, where do you see yourselves in, in your work going in the next couple of years? What's next on the horizon, Bob? Uh, Keeping the bees healthy? <clears throat> Keeping the bees healthy is obviously important. Um, <clears throat> at this lab, there are eight scientists, and five of them are relatively young, so there'll be a lot of changes in the next few years, probably. Um, difficult to predict. But the lab has a, a, a good future and plenty to keep it busy, I, I certainly think so. You know, again, we deal on the biology of the bees. It's fascinating, it's useful. Um, in terms of the industry, it's kind of interesting. I mean, it's probably a typical agricultural industry where labor is an issue, the prices for honey and pollination are an issue. We can't really address those. And and Dave, um, Fluker Farms, your plans? Um, I see a bright future for uh, Fluker Farms. Uh, I'm, I'm, I think I mentioned it earlier, but my nephew is now uh, working with us, so that gives me time to piddle. I am working on uh, trying to automate because the same thing with crickets, you have some very high labor costs, and uh, I'm working through some things now that I think is going to you know, substantially bring down the labor costs, which uh, again leads right back into uh, crickets as a human food because you know you can buy a steak cheaper than you can buy a pound of crickets, <laughs> and uh, I'm thinking that steak sounds a whole lot better than crickets. <laughs> Uh, but as I and you know, as as flukers and the other cricket farmers work to bring down the costs of, uh, of of growing crickets, I I really see crickets as a as a great alternative protein source in the years to come. Well, Dave Fluker and Bob Denka, you both have been such interesting guests and have opened our eyes to some things about farming and bees and crickets and their role in the economy that we've probably never thought of. So thanks for taking time to share your stories and for being with me today on Out to Lunch. You're welcome. My Thank pleasure. You.
My guests today on Out to Lunch have been Dave Fluker of Fluker Farms and Bob Denka of the USDA. You can find out more about Fluker Farms and the USDA by going to the links on our website, it's batonrouge.la. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. Our associate producer is Peter Raschuti. And our Baton Rouge business consultants are Charlie D'Agostino, Dave Winwood, and Ann Edelman. If you want to know what we all look like, you can find photos from this show on our website, it's batonrouge.la, and on our It's Baton Rouge Facebook page. These photos were taken by Carrie Hosford, and you can find more of Carrie's photos at carriehosford.com. You can hear this show in past episodes of Out to Lunch wherever you get podcasts and at itsbatonrouge.la. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsbatonrouge.la and WRKF 89.3 FM. I'm Stephanie Regal. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to meeting you again next week around the table here at Mansur's for more business Baton Rouge style on Out to Lunch. Out to Lunch Baton Rouge is recorded live over lunch at Mansur's on the Boulevard in Baton Rouge. Mansur's is open for lunch daily 11 to 2, for dinner nightly, and for brunch on Saturdays and Sundays. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base, joneswalker.com, and by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas, and Orange Theory Fitness, delivering fitness results for a healthier world.